people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Mr. Kirker, our new boss at the office. This is our assistant manager, Miss Winter. <laughs> Sexy eyes. Do you love me? But I haven't done anything like this before. Don't worry, it's easier than adultery. Done it. Tea. How did the tea get in those bottles? Come now. Tell me everything. Have you have you been saying anything to him? What if I did? I don't know what you feel. Eleanor, I love you. Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Miss Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. We conclude September 2022 with a bit of an oddity. We're discussing the 1965 film from Yuri Weiss, 90 Degrees in the Shade. The film was a Czech and British co-production, meaning that there is both a Czech and English version of this film. It's the story of Elena, a woman who has been involved with a married man who is also her boss. That's always a bad mistake, Elena. And one that will lead to a lot of intrigue when Rudolf Hersinski, as Mr. Kirka, audits the shop in which they work. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast after you have seen the film. We will still be here. Jonathan, what is your history with 90 Degrees in the Shade? I discovered it about 10 years ago, I think, and it was kind of in a rather sort of dry academic way because I, I, I was researching co-productions between Czechoslovakia and the West. So I think it was at the time that I was researching Alan Rob Grier's sort of Slovak adventure. And I had believed, I think for a long time, that that was basically the first, you know, sort of co-production between communist Czechoslovakia and the West. And then I realized I was wrong and there were actually a few other ones preceding that. And so that's how I came across this film and uh, it was actually amazingly on DVD at the time. I think it had been released on British DVD uh, the year before, I think about 2011. Weirdly enough, in a kind of British film series, which was sort of like an unusual way to to place it really. And I must admit that the first time I saw it, it 
didn't really make a huge impact on me. I think it was just because it is such an oddity in a way. And just in terms of like the location, I think it just confused me or confounded me a little bit because of the fact that, I mean, it's set in Prague, you know, you can tell it's Prague and yet you have these kind of two British actors. And I don't, I don't, I only saw the British version. It was only the British version that was available. So I think I was just a little bit confounded by it the first time. And then also the genre, because it, it, it seems to be a few different things at once. I couldn't quite grasp whether I was watching a thriller. You know, is it a kind of like a romantic drama? Is it a psychological study? Since I've watched it more and more, I think I've kind of like come to appreciate it more, I think, especially things like the performances. I mean, I think Krasinski, you know, is giving a, a really, you know, typically great performance. And I mean, having access to the Czech version as well, I mean, enabled me to appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I think it's something that I've come to, you know, appreciate more and more. I think the more I've watched it, I've noticed more sort of subtle details in it. And uh, yeah, I think it, it's been a grower really on me. A grower, not a shower? <laughs> exactly. Oh, Mike. I'm sorry, Kat. <laughs> I don't mean to offend you. <laughs> I'm easily offended, you know. And Kat, how about yourself? This is new to me, which is rare, because I usually go for the safe options on this. <laughs> you bring the lifter. But I had this on my radar for a while because I love the director's murder check style, which is just great. I just hadn't got around to it, really. And so that's why I picked the episode, because I thought, well, seeing as I only ever watch things for work or projects, it'll give me a good chance to catch up with it. And um, I think it's interesting what Jonathan said about it being confusing, because the thing that struck me is, outside of the fact that they're obviously in Prague and you've got signs in, in Czechoslovak language and that, it struck me... It's like a totally British new wave film. It's like more like a kitchen sink drama. Really reminded me of something like Room at the Top with Simone Signoret and this whole idea of a doom love affair. This guy's a bit of a chancer. He wants to make his way up in the in the world. And so I found it really interesting because when you think of the British new wave and the Czech new wave, they couldn't be any further apart. The British new wave was revolutionary because it became very natural sort of working class, gritty lives and all this class stuff in black and white and about couples and stuff. And the Czech new wave was all about breaking those boundaries, like wild editing, crazy montage, all this experimentation. So, I was expecting something more on the Czech side and found a British film. Fortunately, I only got to see the British version. I know the Czech version is uh, is shorter. But, yeah, it surprised me. It wasn't what I was expecting at all. It is so British in, in so many ways. Also, Kenny Ames, who we're going to have to talk about. I know that probably won't mean anything to you, Mike, but... <laughs> Yeah, this was a new one for me as well. And it was, I don't want to use the word surreal because people overuse it. it. It was very disconcerting, let's say, to see uh, Rudolf Horczynski, Vladimir Menzik, Yuri Solvak, all of these very familiar faces. We've talked about them so many times when we go through these Chick Temper episodes. Them speaking English, it took me forever to just like 
detach myself, especially in Vladimir Menzik, just like this like chatterbox thing that he's doing and this guy who's dubbing him over. And I'm like, this is so weird for me to see him speaking, quote unquote, English. I was just like, wow. It's like the dub to Marcello. I saw that come as you, no, come as you are. Is it the one with Natasha Kinski? It's the only other time I've seen Marcello Mastroianni dubbed. And I couldn't deal with it. It's like, stop. This isn't right. <laughs> this is wrong. Who did this? Yeah. At least the guy who dubbed Lino Ventura in the Medusa Touch, he was doing a pretty darn good job. But yeah, this was just so strange. And I was having a hard time. Well, not a hard time. I found it very interesting, let's say, that I don't know who the protagonist of the film is because so much of it is Anne Haywood as Elena. But then also it is Rudolf Hershinsky as Rudolf Kirka, the inspector. I like that they are giving us these two protagonists. And really, you know, at first it feels like Kirka is the antagonist, but really he's the protagonist as well. I have to say before we start off, the Kenny Ames comment was down to James Booth, who plays the love interest or the the guy that Anne Haywood's having an affair with. Now he's he's like all over British TV and British film, but to me it'll always be this character called Kenny Ames. From this series that was on in the eighties called Our V Design Pet. And if you've got Brit boxes on there now, so I went back and watched them again last year and they're amazing. And it's about a group of northern builders. The first series they go off to Germany and they're trying to earn money. And the second season they go off to Spain. And the second season you get this character called Kenny Ames, played by Booth, who's like this He's like this gangster. He's like this cheeky gangster. He's into orgies and, and playing the country lord. And he's really dodgy. And he's also a bit of a comedy character as well. And I could not th- stop thinking about him as Kenny Ames. And I was like, this is Kenny Ames, the origin story. He starts off this low-level stealing alcohol and letting women take the blame. And he ends up somehow as Kenny Ames, you know, Lord of the Manor, this cheeky gangster. And I, I just could not get beyond that. I just could not get beyond. It's good, but I kept thinking, you know, this is Kenny Ames, the origin story. It's a total precursor. I kind of have a similar reaction too, I think, to the way he's used in it, because I think, you know, like that, that word cheeky kind of is the word that I kind of apply to him, really. I think in, in the kind of persona that he has, if you think of him in like in Zulu or something like that, I mean, he's that, and there's that film that he made with Barbara Windsor in the early sixties, which I think is called Sparrows Can't Sing, which is this kind of, uh, that's very much in that vein of that kind of like early British kind of kitchen thing, kind of like this Cockney you know, sort of slice of life. And I mean, he's really in that vein there. And I feel here, he's kind of, I mean, I guess in his other roles, he's often a kind of like a, a disreputable figure. But I think here, he's kind of quite a nasty character. And I feel that he, he it's some, somehow sort of like restraining that kind of like cheeky, sort of like a bullion persona a little bit. And I, I feel that, yeah, you don't get the full... You don't get the full sort of James Booth kind of experience maybe in this, I think. It's kind of like a little bit. He's definitely proto-Kenny because Kenny is funny, but also Kenny is a nasty piece of work. And you always get that in that show. And 
um, I saw that as a kid. It was like huge. And so he, he always became Kenny Ames to me. <laughs> and the, the fact that that character that he plays here has some of those same qualities, like, you know, he just turned on you. It's all that nice, cheeky stuff is really the claw behind the glove. And I think that's what made it so British because that whole cheek thing is like a very British thing, isn't it? Uh, the cheeky cr- criminal type, which is what he is. I mean, God, he's he's terrible, really. It was really surprising, really disconcerting to see Kenny Ames in a Czech film. This is the second time Off Feeder Zane Pet has come up this year because we you were talking watch about it, Mike. It's we were amazing. About Jimmy Nail in the uh, uh, Morons from Outer Space oh, episode. My God. <laughs> Unavoidable, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, Brit Box and I have an appointment. Yes, you do. So it's a short series. It was only two seasons back in the day when a season was like six or eight episodes. But it is it is amazing. Everyone in it is amazing. Jimmy Nail was amazing in it. Timothy Spall as well, wasn't it? Timothy Spall in a really early role before he became sort of well-known through the Mike Lee stuff and that. The whole cast is incredible. But uh, I went back to it last year and I thought this was just such quality writing and TV. James Booth as Varel is really, he is the antagonist, but we don't really realize that as we go on until we start to see those flashbacks and which throws this more into a noir camp at times and just the, oh my God, the devastation of this movie as you go through it. But yeah, it is. It's weird. It's, it's check. It's kitchen sink drama to your point. It's a little film noirish. It's just. Wow. Yeah. What a, what a weird mix. But it, for me, it all fits together in a very interesting way. It doesn't feel like they're handing you anything. It feels like you have to do a little bit of work in this film to really get it. And I'm okay with that. It's it just the very first time I saw it, I was like, oh, what am I watching? This is so bizarre. <laughs> and I mean, the noir element is weird too, isn't it? Because you get that kind of central sequence where they're kind of driving around trying to replace the bottles and it does feel very noir because you've got this jazz score it's you know it's at night you've got this kind of like city scenes and and yet you know i think that was one of my problems the first time i saw it because like when you come down to what they're doing in a way it's kind of banal isn't it it's just you know they're kind of just like buying up these these liquor bottles to replace them and i think that was something that confused me because it it feels like there should be something kind of like more dramatic going on really and kind of like wrong foot you, I think. And I think that, I think I remember reading the review by, I think it was Bosley Crowther in the New York Times and he was like, well, what, you know, what, so what? It's just like a few like, you know, liquor bottles and, and, and why all this kind of, you know, noirish, you know, tone and, uh, it's kind of interesting because I guess a lot of the Czech New Wave was also about, you know, just trivialities, wasn't it? And just these little things that ultimately have like a wider, impact if you think of like something like black peter but milos foreman i mean that's also set in a in a, a store isn't it and it's also about like kind of petty thieving and things like that i guess some of that stuff is quite check isn't it really that concentration on sort of minutiae and i suppose also it's the fact that i mean the theft you know of the, like the bigger theft the theft of like or the embezzlement of like the other supplies i mean we find out that i mean that actually would have been a lot of money Kirker says that would have been like somebody's wages for like a year, basically in in Czechoslovakia. So I think that it's kind of like a, there's a contextual level there, isn't there? Where I think that you know it's actually there's a sort of a bigger stake there than it may seem, really, because that's yeah, that's actually very expensive alcohol in this context. 
Yeah, it's weird. They're not trying to hide a dead body. They're not trying to murder someone. They're not trying to steal a million dollars. It is just this theft that has gone on for a long time and that the two auditors, because we should also say that uh, Sir Donald Wolfett is also here. So we've He's got- also in room at the top as well. So that threw me. That threw me. It does have another connection to that. Yeah, he was a very familiar face when I saw him. I mean, those eyebrows just cannot be mistaken. Uh, he, he almost leaned Brezhnev-ish. Yeah, I was going to say that. He kind of fits into the context, actually, doesn't he? I mean, I think if you didn't know who he was, you 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 know, he could plausibly be a Czech or East European actor. Yeah, he's great though, even though he's not in it much. But he's really good at these kind of blustery type characters. And again, that's another very British thing, isn't it? So him him with his little, you know, all these little monologues that he's got, he's really good, even though you don't see much of him. Spot check. We come to check your spots. You've been <laughs> squeezing them again, I see. And I love how he's the gregarious one and everybody seems to like him, even though he's there to do his job. But Kirka, man, he's just like, nope, I'm here. No, it's really bad to for you to fraternize with the employees and just is so businesslike, even though we've already seen him scoping out Elena. There's so much voyeurism in this film and that we start at one of Czech's public pools and with Krasinski as Kirka looking at her specifically and then we have that other guy again you're talking about yeah, wrong footing the other, yeah. yeah the other guy who's there at the pool and you're like oh who's this guy the guy who's like eating and looking at her and it's kind of almost triangle of Krasinski and this other dude looking at Anne Haywood and I'm like oh okay is he gonna come back and no he never comes back just the guy at the pool I'm like all right I got really confused at the beginning because for a minute I thought that Wolfie actually worked at the shop because he's got such a... He's got a rapport. He's so friendly. It's like they're all, yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, I get it. He's the manager. And Rudolph has come in to check. No, and then it was like, no, hang on a minute. He works. (laughs) Yeah, that was confusing. That was confusing. It was almost as if he'd always been there and and he just worked with these people every day and... I love when uh, Rusinski's like, everybody likes Bizant, but they don't like me. <laughs> it's weird going back to the, the scene at the pool with the young guy, because uh, you get that later scene, don't you, where they're getting the new liquor, liquor bottles, and there's that group of men who start harassing her. And it's I, I guess maybe that, you know, the way they use that young guy at the beginning, it's just to sort of establish this very predatory environment isn't it but mm. it, it, but the way it's set up like that at the beginning it does lead you to think well something more is going to happen with this character and then you yeah you'd never see him again and uh yeah i think it's more about like uh, establishing a tone i, I suppose isn't it and a, and a kind of like a predatory voyeuristic quality but yes it doesn't really narratively doesn't really add anything i think one of the weird things as well is in the at least in one of the versions you see kirk drinking a beer when he's at the pool, and yet he tells you later that he doesn't drink. So I, I, I often I kind of think about you know what he what drinks at his home as well. That's true, I think yeah. He, yeah, yeah, when he goes home, his son gives him a drink. So I think he just says that to be more mm. official, like oh, Maybe, you yeah. know, I don't do that. Yeah, because he's got that really amazing sort of pernickety, which I love that type of personality mm. in film, like official. He's just so pedantic and he's got no sense of humor. And it's perfect role for him because he's such a great 
physical performance, all these like little mannerisms. He's so uptight. And then she starts wiping him down, which is amazing. <laughs> she loved that. Now, that wouldn't have happened in a British film, I don't think. She's holding that candle, isn't it? It's very kind of phallic looking, kind of. I think it's a very deliberate choice, too, of him wearing those glasses. And just it puts that layer between him and the rest of the world and makes him more of that observer character. He's just like, and it also makes his eyes look a lot bigger as well. So I, I really like just so much of what it's so unfair to watch him being dubbed. So I almost wish there was a third version of this film where the English people spoke English, the Czech people spoke Czech and that was okay. And you just like, they understood each other completely. I'd rather just have them speaking their own languages and subtitle them vice versa and go for it because Krasinski, a lot of his performances lost in the English translation. Cause that voice, I think, uh, I mean, I think, I think the English, actor whoever it is who's dubbing him i mean i it's not bad but it just doesn't have that kind of like resonance does it that kind of like purring quality that his voice has probably this is maybe kind of like a very british thing but it to me just sounds too posh somehow and too it's like a little yeah, i mean i it guess, does sound I, guess posh. I guess he is a kind of like a, a you know he's a he's a you know middle class character but it, it it's just a little bit over refined for me maybe that's just a very pretty and and the menshik is a little bit more he was the one who threw me because i got him as this sort of flamboyant sexually ambiguous like chattering cockney i was like yeah, i yeah. can't deal cockney, with this it? yeah this yeah. is wrong <laughs> this is just totally wrong to be coming out of his mouth it just it was a strange choice. It was a strange choice. I think I'd have given him a northern accent, but maybe that's because I'm northern. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> and Sovak too. Sovak has this, yeah, again, like sort of rather, uh, maybe not as posh as the Shushinsky one, but again, it's this little kind of, little finicky kind of voice, isn't it, really? Which again, I, w- I would give him a, a deeper voice somehow, I think. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just the associations kind of, you know, are strange, aren't they, I think. It made him almost like a comedy character when he's not actually a comedy character. He's just the brother-in-law, but it, it was almost as if they were trying to make him more of that. It's just that voice type he had as the connotations of that era of British comedy. And it's like, why? He's not really a comical character. Why have they done this? It was a strange choice, I thought. Strange choice, although you only get to see him in two scenes. But yeah, I couldn't really understand it. It's also a very deliberate choice having Anne Haywood as our main female character um, married to the producer. The producer was very much like, hey, I really want my wife in this. I want to make her a star. Mm. Apparently, uh, Weiss was looking at, I'm trying to remember. Betsy Blair, wasn't it? I think. Betsy Blair. Thank you. Yeah. Who would have been 10 years older and I think would have played it a little bit differently. The whole tone of it would have been, this is a woman alone 
a little bit more desperate. Varel would be a little bit more predatory, taking advantage of her because he just takes advantage of her through the entire thing. And it feels like she's just had a whole series of bad romances. And this is the latest in a long string. And this is the worst of the lot. But I think having her as an older character, a little bit less sexualized, perhaps might've been a better choice, but Anne Haywood does a good job. It's just, it plays a little differently. I always felt like Anne Haywood deserved more. She was she was a great actress, but she didn't really do an awful lot in film. And a couple of years on from this, she was already, she'd gone to Italy. By 1978, she turns up in Rings of Darkness, the band pedo exorcist ripoff by Pierre Carpi, where she's with a, I think a 12-year-old, full bush naked Laura Wendell having a bitch slapping fest. And it's like, what happened, Anne? What happened? You did she she just had so much promise, but it was almost as if the film industry didn't quite know how to use her. Like I I love it when she even in in sort of the Italian stuff that she shows up in, I love it because I think she's great. She's always got a great sense of presence. It was as, almost as if they just didn't quite know because she had a bit too much of intelligence to be there. And obviously, 65, it was the year of Julie Christie and the Charlotte Rampling, so she didn't really fit into that either. I mean, obviously, she's a name, but she never... I, don't, I think she should have gone further. She is an incredible actress. And I don't know, it's interesting you said she should have been older because I did read her as a kind of older character in this. And then I would get pulled back out when they'd make these comments about her being young and pretty because she seemed to have the weight of the world on her shoulders. Like she, she'd been through it. So I don't know if that was just her choice to do it that way and the script was different. But there is a certain sense of like intelligent cynicism to her performance in this, which makes the ending kind of a shock because you're like, hey, how did we get here? <laughs> You've let me down. You've let me down, girl. For the listeners at home, the whole story is, you know, like I said, these two inspectors come to this store to take stock, see everything that's going on with the store. And so we have uh, all of these liquor bottles that are going to uh, flag something that's, uh, you know, a problem. Uh, this whole taking stock of things. So. Oh, what do you know? Um, Varel, I think, has been selling things or taking things from the store. And so then they have to suddenly go out and replace this stuff. So they make poor, he makes poor Elena go out and try to get money from everybody. She tries to go to Vladimir Menzik, her brother in law, try to get money from him, go to all these different places, trying to get money so that they can buy liquor. So they go out, they buy this liquor. That's like we said, the longer sequence in the film of them going to all these places, trying to get replacement for it. And then what do you know? The liquor hasn't been replaced. There's a broken bottle and they find out that it's just tea inside of this liquor bottle. <laughs> so it feels like Varel has played a fast one on her. Is that what I'm getting? Are, are you guys getting the same? Yeah, I don't think she was in on it. She didn't know he all the time. And then he's driving around in this bloody car. And the red flag for me was she's running around trying to borrow this money for bottles that he took. And then he's like, oh, here's my new car. And I just thought, you wanker. <laughs> so he's embezzling it and 
it's very Goodfellas to me. You know, merchandise comes in the front and it goes right out the back. And he's just making money. And so she's devastated. She tries to go to Kirka and tries to get him to listen to her. He won't listen because he's so officious. And she ends up committing suicide, but trying to commit suicide. And I like that line about, oh, well, her sister was late. Otherwise, it w- she would have been rescued. And it's like, oh, so was this a cry for help or was this a real suicide attempt? And in the end, well, it ends up being a real up. suicide. Yeah. It's a great performance, I think. She never really know what she's thinking. Though we do get her flashbacks, so Yeah, we get her flashbacks, but what she often says to Varel doesn't explain her behavior. She quite often fronts it out with him and says, I don't love you, I don't like you, I can't wait to get away from you. But then her actions suggest otherwise. You know, why is she running around town trying to get this money back? Why does she give a shit? Why not just say, wow, it's your bed, you lie in it. And and so, yeah, she's a really ambiguous character, which I appreciated. You take all of that and then you contrapose it against Kirka. And then you mention his wife, Kirkova, uh, played by Ann Todd. He may be very put together when he's out in the world, but he comes home and she is just, I hate to throw this word around, she's a harpy. Oh my God, she is terrible. The one scene that's missing from the English version that's in the Czech version that I love is Kirka in his kitchen fixing himself some dinner and you get to see how dirty the sink is. The sink is filthy and it's just like she is doing nothing but laying in bed, drinking. He's got this layabout son who's just an embarrassment, doesn't want the son to be anything like him. Wow. Having that takes this movie from simple story to now it's elevated. And I love what they're doing with this relationship. And it's it's really interesting, isn't it? For a few reasons, because I mean, he's obsessed with order, isn't he? And then his home life represents the absolute opposite of that. And then also that I, there's kind of like a weird parallel between these two sort of like dysfunctional relationships, isn't, isn't there? I mean, bo- in both cases revolve around bottles because you have that like stash of like empty bottles that the, the wife is drinking and then he's just putting them in the, cupboard underneath the sink and there's kind of like a weird mirror image of the sort of like the other situation there and i see him and Anne haywood is parts of the same coin well they're both so lonely even though he's married it feels like he is just completely on his own she's got varel which is worse than having no one but she doesn't know that and yeah it just they seem like these two very lonely figures who are never going to connect and they should connect you know they those two would be the perfect people together but their own in their own hells they should have got together there's a little bit at the beginning when they leave the shop and they're just saying goodbye and he awkwardly asks her are you going this way and she says no where there's a little moment between them like just this little bit of chemistry and you think oh is this where it's gonna go is he going to fall in love with her? Is it going to, you know, but there is real chemistry there between them. And then it's never like, then the next day they're back in the shop and it's business as usual, but it's a really beautiful scene because you like to your point about loneliness, you can tell how lonely they both are just in this. It's like a little split second where they share this glance and he 
awkwardly says, oh, are you going this way? And she says, oh, no, I'm going that way. And he almost goes to follow her. And it's really sweet, I think. Only someone like um, Horinsky could pull off that sort of pathetic but officious and scary but all the things going on because he is actually deep down a very sweet character who has got horrendous home life and, you know, all this kind of weird... I think he just wants to be good at his job, doesn't he? He just wants to be good at something because he's quite new. Whereas that other guy, the one who's been there years, his old wolf, he, he doesn't care. He's just like, yeah, whatever. Like, it's just a little, just forget it. Yeah, he doesn't want the paperwork, does he? Even his boss, even Yuri Sovak is uh, ready to tell. Yeah, he's just like, ah, don't sweat it. Ah, it's okay. And, the, and then when he finds out the quote-unquote truth about the suicide, he's just like, okay, yeah, we're going we're gonna to put this here and we're never going to talk about it again. Thanks. Wow. Even though around this time, it kind of becomes a little bit of a murder mystery right towards the end when Kirk is like, I know who really is to blame for this. This is, it's Varel. And so he starts doing like the real creeping on him. And it's like, I love that shot. That, that zoom is amazing, isn't it? In the window, he's like, I'm, I'm on to you. I'm watching you. Oh, he's so good. I think there's, his face is always in close up though, isn't it? In track film. And it's so perfect. It's just that gaze, isn't it? That just like that intense gaze. Mm. And it's just those movements of the eyes kind of up and down. And it's just so subtle. I, I really like, it was one of the things I picked up on. I think the more I watched it, that it kind of comes full circle, doesn't it, at the end, because it ends with him at the pool again or at the, you know, the sort of swimming area. And just as at the beginning, he's got, he's this kind of like embodiment of this kind of like impotent voyeurism. And at the end, it's kind of the same in a weird way because he's watching Varel, but he can't do anything because he's got nothing to use to incriminate him. And he's just like watching passively and hopelessly. And it's just that sense of things just like kind of coming round full circle without changing. And it's still just this desperate situation at the end. You've still got that same kind of like just hopeless sort of environment again at the end. It's uh, yeah, bleak, bleak ending, really. <laughs> it is it is really bleak and, and sad. Go back to the the kind of idea of masculinity, though. There is some really interesting, because you've got Varel when he goes to the house to sort of confront him, like, I know what you did. The way he picks that fucking kid up like a human shield and puts it right next to him and goes, well, you can say what you want now. Like, Like, it's like, oh, my God, this guy is like the worst type of coward. That, you know, he's even using that kid to get off the hook. And there's like no flinch at all when he hears about this suicide. Like he barely looks up, whereas Ferinsky's character is mortified when he finds out. And just the look, like all the color and everything goes out of his face. But he is like the worst. He, I don't know if any of the men in this come out as quote unquote good, really, in a good light, because all of them, the, the bosses don't really care. You know, Varel's just this horrible opportunist coward. He's probably a bit of a bully as well. When he slaps her, then you see his true colors. You know, even Horinsky is like this weirdly impotent, lonely figure. He's probably the nicest, but then he's not that nice because he still puts her under all that pressure. So, yeah, and the son. That son is... <laughs> that son is a little shit. 
He's trying to help him with his math homework, isn't he? And he's just like... <laughs> he is the one who needed the slap. That's, he was the one who needed that. It's a real, like, arm swing. It's one of the other scenes that I think is only in the British version is the scene with that party. And I think that's... Oh, my God. Our, that's so sort of sad, isn't it? The way, you know, Hrushinsky turns up and it's just like that spectre at the feast, isn't it? And it's like everything just, like, stops. It's just, like, so, you know... And her line, her line going, he spoils everything. She just come home like, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And that the son is dancing with the mother. I was just like, that's kind of odd. There's so many birds in that room and he's just with the mother. I'm like, okay, great. And that couple in the kitchen as well, about to have sex. It's like this guy's just coming from work. What the hell is going on here? Just wants to make a cup of tea. That is a mad scene. Is a total mild scene, but he, he needed to give them all the slap. And I guess it just signifies how weak he really is because he just does nothing. He just shuffles off pathetically to the next room. And then they all just carry on like, oh, he's gone now. <laughs> the music in this movie is so strange. That weird opening uh, song where it's the spooky woman's voice kind of thing. And then it is like real hardcore jazz like Dave Brubeck just took a whole bunch of speed he's just like I'm ready to go let's do it it's like wow yeah the jazz is amazing because when they're doing the whole juggling the bottle running around the off licenses thing the soundtrack to it I think like Jonathan said earlier it's like makes it seem like some sort of you know thriller noir thing but then when you look at what they're actually doing it's like hang on a minute just going around the offies buying stuff i i was confused as to what they were doing for a few minutes because the soundtrack i thought oh my god they're gonna steal more like what's going on and then hang on a minute they're just buying this piece (laughs) like (laughs) there's that scene with like this echoing piano thing that's going on and then there's uh on the soundtrack later there's no music but it's just that that ticking clock and her memories with the ticking clock. I'm like, man, it's a very interesting way to to present this stuff. Which I think is stronger, isn't it, in the Czech version? I think they do more with the sound like that, where they kind of just like abstract the sound from like the sort of the other, you know, it's like the you have that like one sound, like the clock ticking, and they take away the kind of other like ambient noises. And uh, well, I mean, one thing I think is really interesting is when you look at like uh, Vice's own comments, uh, which I think is in the book, the Closely Watched Films book. I think it's the interview that he did. And the way he describes it, it's like so different from like the effect of watching the film because he says something about, he sees it, he saw it as like a political critique about the figure of Kirker and that he's like this, this, this bureaucrat who is just like persecuting people. And it's about the, the nature of this system where you have these very officious people just hounding people to suicide. And yet when you watch it, I think that's not really the, the, the resonance that it has. It's more, I think it's more of, I mean, I would say if it's criticizing anything, it's more that just kind of casual corruption and the kind of slackness, which I think probably would have been more characteristic of Czechoslovakia at this time that I think there probably would have been more people who were like Bajant or like, the boss than like the Kirka figure. I mean, from what you hear about, you know, how Czechoslovak communism was like in, especially the 60s, 70s, 80s, I think it was more that just kind of jobs worth, 
not even jobs worth, but just that that casual, just like couldn't give a toss, you know, attitude about you know official business. And in a way, Kirk, uh, in a, in a weird way, he is the one who is kind of following the the correct procedure. And I mean, he doesn't sort of intend, you know, how things are going to happen, how things are going to you know ensue from that, but. I don't feel that he is kind of like the bad guy at all, really. I feel that he's, I mean, he's not that he's a hero, but he's not, he's not a villain either, I think. I i really came to, I don't say all out like him, but there were parts of him that were quite sweet, especially seeing his home life and that. It's interesting you say that about that interview, actually, because I didn't read anything from the director, but I was like, where are the politics in this? Like, where, where are the politics? Because it's, it's Czech. And it doesn't seem overly political. It doesn't seem overly political. It's more about the personal, just this petty man trying to keep control because of his personal life. And everybody else, like you said, Jonathan, this sort of low-level corruption, everybody turning a blind eye. It didn't feel like the big political statement that a lot of Czech films are from this period. You know, especially something like The Cremator, where you have got somebody who's very petty and, you know, wants to climb the social ladder. And it's it's very different to the character he plays in The Cremator. And he's he's also pernickety and very detail-orientated in that. But this is a much softer, more sympathetic character, I think. Yeah, there is an interesting trajectory, isn't there, of Hrushinsky playing these sort of like eccentric, like official figures, isn't there, from this to like, because I think Murder Check style, he's all some kind of kind of petty sort of like office employee, isn't he, of some cases, another kind of bureaucratic. He's really funny as well. He was just so good at those roles or roles with these like weird little characteristics them because he's just so physical. I just think he's perfect. But in a way, his acting style was so different to the British cast because the British cast, very naturalistic sort of acting style, whereas old Rudolph is very into his little, you know, so he's like, I wouldn't say theatrical because he is natural as well. But, you know, there's that intense sort of quirks to his character that he's obviously spent a lot of time working in whereas the the british lot are just kind of slapping about saying their lines you know they're a bit more so it's an interesting it's a really interesting mix of styles and then with the music and everything on top as well does it entirely work though i don't know i think it does on a on a weird level i know we've criticized parts of it but um yeah, I didn't find anything jarring or, you know, there are parts of it that seem kind of out of sync, but I think that made it interesting. I just think it made it interesting. But, yeah, I think it works. What about you two? I know what you mean. I think it is a little bit of an odd mix of elements that perhaps, you know, where some maybe could have been emphasised more, maybe others like less so. And, yeah, I would I would say it's like a minor gem, really. I wouldn't say it's like, we were looking at like Vice's filmography. I would take like Romeo, Juliet, and Darkness or Murder Check style. I think for me, those are like the real masterpieces that he made. I think, I think partly in this case, it was that odd mix of collaborators where you had, I think, the producer, you know, Raymond Strauss, he was going in one direction. Probably Vice was going in a different one. And, you know, as you say, with the cast too, they're kind of like doing 
slightly different things, aren't they? And I believe there was a bit of tension, like on set, I think, between Hushinsky and the British actors. I know. That- I can imagine. I can imagine because he seemed to have like a a very formal style of acting, whereas you know a lot of the. I mean, I know Anne Hayward did stuff on the stage, but a lot of the British sort of up and coming actors and therefore totally coming from this kind of period in British theatre where everything had become about the method and about naturalism. So they're like much more low key. Whereas you can imagine that Hurinsky would be kind of, I wouldn't say difficult to work with, but you can imagine he'd be very into his performance in this formal way with everyone more relaxed. From what I've heard from, uh, I think it was on the commentary actually for the the, the Blu-ray and I, I think there's a there's a, a quotation from um, Anne Todd's memoir, I think, where she apparently said that she she just didn't have a happy time at all because she, she would, and also because of the circumstances, because she was speaking in English and then Hrushinsky would speak in, in Czech or I guess in like phonetic English and she said he would just kind of like stand opposite her with his head down like his mouth would barely move and you know she would have difficulty kind of like getting the cue from him and she said I think she said like he had no sense of humor which is kind of odd isn't it really when you think of the kind of some of the roles that he played and just a general disconnection and I think I've heard that Krasinski was also a bit unhappy that like the British actors they were getting paid a lot more oh yeah well that would be a rub wouldn't it and then not remember you know and and then also just not being as together because I think he was like one like you say I mean he was coming from that background where you know you had like real chops and I mean he was like on stage every night so he was really like a honed you know very technically gifted actor who could just you know, to, like the sort of like, it's the famous thing, isn't it? The Olivier thing, just like try acting, you know, you can just turn it on and off really. And like you say, the British style at that time was a much more kind of like naturalistic, kind of like spontaneous, you know, style. So yeah, I think, and I think you kind of get that too in the film, don't you? I think, because I think there's something about his presence that because of the sort of control that he brings to it, like the way he moves where he turns his head, it's always very controlled and it, it, he tends to kind of like overbalance, I think. And uh, I know that some reviewers, I think at least in Czechoslovakia and I think elsewhere, they felt that like there should have been more about him really. And it should, like he is the real centre of attention and it should have been like his story really. It was him, isn't it? He upstages everyone. He always upstages everyone because he was just so incredible but such a theatrical performer as well that he does stand out just on that i was thinking totally different type of film but the the kind of arguments that they have between peter laurie and boris karloff on the raven with vincent price in the middle because boris karloff was like very formal we read the script we do the script and peter laurie's coming in with all these like brechtian techniques and he won't read the script and apparently vincent price is in the middle going now come on and they didn't get on at all because it's like no he keeps going off the script and you could imagine someone like Rudolph being the same maybe especially with these sort of poorly trained British people I'm not saying they were poorly trained it was a different era though it was definitely that um we're not going to do acting anymore era wasn't it and you suddenly had all those performers that came out of that Hayward being one of them 
James Booth was another. I think he was from that theatre workshop background, wasn't he? Like the joke. Yeah, like very sort of, yeah. Oh, oh, hey, chaps, we're just going to... It was all very not British. (laughs) Just a tiny pocket of it, I think, that lasted about 15 years. But you can imagine the weird culture shock between them. Not like Italy either, where they were used to doing these co-productions. Because when you think of the British industry, it was so small at the time. I know like Ponti had his hand in it, and you had people like Marcello, we mentioned earlier, turning up in British film in Diamonds Are... Oh, that's a weird one, isn't it? Yeah. Rita Cushingham is a uh, Tushingham as well. It's like, what the, the hell is happening here? But it wasn't that big whereas in Italy they were used to having all these like diverse casts but you think Britain was quite insular outside of letting Americans in I guess and the the Czechoslovak industry was very insular just by virtue of the fact that they were under communism so it's a it's like the fact that this was even made is bizarre Weiss's career and just his life was so strange and fascinating. I, I listened to the um, the indicator disc, by the way, is freaking fantastic, uh, of which I think, Jonathan, you had a hand in there. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the... <laughs> he always keeps quiet about that. <laughs> the, uh, the interview with him on the disc uh, where he's talking about his experiences during World War II and just how he's jumping around from country to country to country and trying to get out of Czechoslovakia. He was in, he, was, he had made it to the UK. He went back to Czechoslovakia. He ends up trying to get out of there. He goes to Holland. He gets thrown in jail. It just... It was wild. Like his story was more unbelievable than the most unbelievable film. It was just wild to hear all of these stories of him doing this. And then, you know, that was just a section that he's talking about of like, uh, six, seven years. And then after that, he again continues to bounce all around. He wasn't even talking about the stuff that happened after the Prague Spring and all this. And he's just, you know, a man without a country for a lot of years. Yeah, he's one of those figures who doesn't really fit into the kind of like period in, in Czechoslovak cinema because he was, I guess he was, uh, maybe not even one generation, but I would say maybe even two generations older than like the new wave filmmakers. I mean, yeah, cause he'd been, you know, he'd been making films during the war or I think even maybe before as well. And, and, uh, so, and I guess that was probably a problem with a film like this where it doesn't quite fit into the new wave paradigm and uh yeah he's just one of those figures who doesn't really have a place like in film history really because i mean i think he probably made i i think i remember reading he probably made one or two films early on that were kind of in that sort of socialist realist vein but i mean i think he was more or less able to sort of pursue his own path like even in the 50s and and uh because I think even something like Romeo, Juliet and Darkness is actually a bit earlier, isn't it, than the new wave? I think it's like late, kind of around 1960. So, you know, he was kind of like ahead of his, he was ahead of that whole thing, really, because he was doing, you know, things like that before, you know, the new wave really kicked off. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's part of the problem that he, he's just hard to categorize. He's hard to kind of fit into any particular period and uh, i mean i think murder check style is probably his most um new wave film in a way isn't it i would say but even that is kind of not really uh that's its own thing it's also like there's a bit of a kind of crazy comedy 
element in that as well and 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 that and it's a bit like a, a riff on the whole especially with the title the italian comedy styles as well it's not it, i i love that film but I was looking at his filmography before we did this because I was like, how have I... I mean, that was the third film that I, of his I'd seen. Obviously, Murder Track style, I came to because of The Cremator. So, you know, I wanted to see more of old Rudolph. And Romeo and Juliet, I think I watched that before I did something with you, Mike, and I'm trying to think what it was, but it was something on World War Two. But I was thinking, you know, I've not really come across a lot of his, his work, you know, even in the sort of grey areas of the internet where you look for that sort of stuff. He He's difficult to define, not really part of the Czech New Way, but even like you've got people like Yorai Hertz and that who were outside of that, really, you can come across their work fairly easily. I'd not even encountered his work sort of in that looking around, looking for new Czech films to watch. So it's interesting. And I guess for some people, they will only know him from 90 Degrees because it had a UK release, which which is a shame. But I would like to see more of his stuff. I would like to see more of his films because he's, he's interesting. Like Jonathan said, he's difficult to place. It's like... He's just totally got his own thing going on, hasn't he? It's like, what is he doing here? And a, and a lot of stuff from, like, with the noir, all the Italian comedies, bringing in stuff from the outside that you generally don't see in Czech film from that period. So, yeah, I want to see more. Someone needs to do a box set of his work. Well, and if people want to hear us talk about uh, murder Czech style, the three of us will come back in a year and discuss that. Yeah, we've already planned that, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> How sad is that? Looking forward to that, though. Yeah, that'd be... <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm looking forward. I haven't seen it for a few years. I'm really looking forward to going back to it. I don't remember this one scene with old Rudolf Rinsch with this like crash helmet on he's like stalking he's like running around he's like really clumsy in that in it and it's 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 funny but so different to this so different to this so different to 90 degrees but he is a similar character in that but it's a lot more fun i think i remember there's another scene with him in that where he's kind of like just sitting in bed reading and it's just about the sort of sad life of this guy who just has to you know like spend his time in bed you know he can only you know he, he can read he can read his bedtime book and it's a bit like poor kirker isn't it you know he's there with his wife different situation slightly but again you know that's you're just consigned to just reading books in bed that's all you can do <laughs> i'm looking forward to see him actually speaking czech in that film so you're absolutely right it is a purr i mean especially we especially get that in the cremator and so to see him in anything he's he's always such a pleasure i mean the last time we talked about him was what the um uh yuri mensel film um capricious summer and he's so good in that. Again, another very theatrical type of character, isn't it? Because he's he's like very he's chest puffing, but also weirdly, I remember us laughing at the the wanking scene in that the foot massage. <laughs> How can someone say he had no sense of humour? I think it was just maybe that just disconnect, wasn't it, of languages? And I mean, the, the weird thing is, is I think that, you know, Vice actually spoke English because, I mean, he would have done, I guess, with having been in the UK during the war. But they, I think they still had a kind of like an English language translator who would like 
So I think Vice would maybe talk in Czech to the Czech actors and then he would say something in Czech and then it would go through like an English interpreter. And I don't know how it just sounds like it was a very cumbersome shoot. And like you say, can't, like it, I guess Czechoslovak- neither Czechoslovakia nor Britain had that kind of system in place where they were used to doing. No, whereas Italy, every film was that. So they had like a whole sort of setup for it, didn't they? With production managers and dubbers and, you know, all these all these different people's whole jobs were there to accommodate the fact that most of the cast, every single one would be from a different nationality. You'd have like German, American, a, a Brit on there and Italians, a couple of Spaniards. And so they had that. They had that industry there but Czechoslovakia is such a closed industry Britain I wouldn't say was very welcoming to, to was it really to diversity you you had a lot of Americans but that was about it because even with all those like American productions like in the 60s I mean they were usually like like say I was thinking of like like say the Lindley Anderson films I mean th- those are still like fundamentally very British films aren't they with you know, entirely British casts. It's just that the money was coming from America. But I mean, otherwise, there's no sign of any other kind of involvement by any other country. And, and uh, yeah, there wasn't that kind of like just mixing of nationalities the way you see in it- Italian cinema. And I guess you had like actors in Italy who, you know, even like Hollywood actors or British who were just used to doing co-productions. You know, there were certain actors who just did a lot of those sort of films and I guess they were used to doing it. And even people like Trantignan, who did, did, did a lot of Italian movies, didn't he? And I guess just were familiar with how it worked. And I guess in this case, you had somebody like Donald Wolfit or Antard, maybe. I know, very- Donald Wolfit, man, in a Czech film. That's just wild. <laughs> <laughs> it just made me think, actually, you know, because you mentioned Vincent Price, and there is, I believe, hasn't there been a suggestion that he was the inspiration for the Edward Lionheart figure in Theatre of Blood because he was that kind of Shakespeare. I mean, I don't think he was anywhere near as bad as that, but he was that kind of model of the that kind of actor manager, you know, sort of like Shakespearean, you know, very sort of declamatory. And, uh, yeah, so you have that acting style, don't you, of him there against Rashinsky? I guess he was, he, yeah, he was like that very formal, but in a different way. He comes from that era before the new wave in Britain where they had this formality, but it was very posh, wasn't it? It was like yeah, very. Like barnstorming, sort of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's kind of like from that generation. It's, it's strange. And then you've got the two younger ones who are more natural, more sort of, you know, old James Booth is just playing Kenny Ames, which is obviously derived from himself somehow because he always seems to have that in his character somewhere. The other weird element in this is the presence of uh, David Mercer, who was like the writer that, that I th- and I, I'm not entirely clear what he did on it because, I mean, Vice seems to suggest that he didn't do a lot. He basically just polished it up and then he added a few things and then... That's another really weird element because, like, David Mercer was this kind of, like, strange experimental, like, TV playwright who wrote the movie Morgan, A Suitable Case for Treatment. That was based on his play, and then he he, he wrote the script for that with Carol Rice, and it's got David Warner playing this kind of crazy artist who dresses up as a gorilla, and then he went on to write Providence for Alan René, and that's a really weird kind of other element in this, I think, because you have this British... I guess he was kind of a bit kitchen sink, but he also had this weird, like, surrealist or sort of experimental tendency as well. And, uh, yeah, it would just be fascinating to know, like, what he 
brought to this, really. I mean, now you're saying this because 65 in the British industry, there's sign of it is the new wave, but you're getting a lot more experimentation going on. And by the end of the 60s, British films, because you've even got surrealism in there openly in films like Wonderwall and whatever, and the Beatles films. And thinking about it, you know, the whole noirish elements of this and the very gritty sort of kitchen sink, bad relationship type thing. And I mentioned Reem at the top. That's like years before this. So it's almost like it's looking back to a style that, that it, 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 it evolved by, by this point, even in British film. Yeah, like you say, it's kind of at that transitional point, I think, isn't it? Because it's like, I think probably they made it. Yeah, in- you had Billy Liar, which had aspects of fantasy. You had um, Darling with Julie Christie, which is quite a sort of weirdly cynical film that goes beyond that. And then it starts to go into some like a few years of i'd say kind of surrealist film so that that real sort of room at the top thing which i think of like gold standard british new wave had passed so it's strange now you were saying that because it wasn't even really relevant to british film at that time it it evolved at that point so it's like what were they actually trying to <laughs> trying to capture? Actually, what were, you know, they could have probably got away with more surrealism because I think the audience here was open to that then, or it was starting to to shift towards that. So yeah, it's weird. Room at the top. I'm trying to think. Was that 59? Yeah, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, that's quite an early one. It's like yeah, it's almost like looking back. You've got this character who who is like um, Lawrence Harvey in that. Who's like a bit of a go-getter he uses women and he's a liar and you've got Simone Signoret who not to give any spoilers but she's like this very cynical lover who's just had enough and parts of that have elements of the noir as well there's a scene in that where she's driving with this scarf on her head and they're up on this thing so yeah it's, it's weird I wonder what he was actually channeling here because it was old school new wave, not not what was actually happening in the new wave at that point, which was the new wave was probably dead by then. I would have said it was transitioning to something else, wasn't it? That's right. Because I was thinking you have those kind of like British kind of like noirish films, don't you? Like, is it called Hell Drivers, the one with Stanley Baker, which I think is like about 1960? And but yeah, again, and again, they a were a bit earlier. They were a bit earlier, weren't they? Yeah. So it's it's interesting because I think this is like coming out in 65 which is i guess the, the like you said the british cinema is changing because you get those like the richard lester films don't you and, and yeah richard lester the year after alfie comes out i mean it's a real change in uh in what was happening and and uh it was just when you were saying about you know the writing and that bit and i thought yeah but this is old school it's weird and then I guess the Czech New Wave, I guess by the time this came out, I mean, that would have started too, really. I guess that would have been getting kind of international attention. So it just, it probably just, I guess this is why it didn't really make much impact. And these hip young cats, or <laughs> and you've got like. Maybe if they'd made it about the son, I guess the son, Kirk's son, could have been a kind of like a Milos Foreman character, couldn't he? I guess it could have been a different film. If, They've had more of the party. Maybe it would have been more successful, I guess. But <laughs> I think it wasn't even released in Britain, I believe. I don't think it even got like, which is really weird, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of... So that is interesting. Yeah, I assumed it had come out here. But now it explains why I never, ever came across it, <laughs> ever. Yeah, what a weird thing to have this movie made for British audiences that never 
comes up there. It does make sense because British TV here in the 80s with its like four channels, you basically got to see every British film ever made because they would just recycle. That's why so many British horror fans are all like hammer, hammer, hammer because they just like, oh, this is British. Here are BBC Two. Like, here's four British It was like very much like that. And I thought, how have I missed this? Because literally everything else would just recycle on repeat because, you know, and uh, and now it makes sense. If it never played it, never had a release it, it makes absolute sense why we... But yet we had, what's its name? The sci-fi, Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scold Myself with Tea. <laughs> we had that <laughs> on BBC Two. Not that I saw it at the time, but, you know, we talked about that before, didn't we? But not this, yeah. When I remember hearing about it, probably about maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago, somebody telling me, and I was like, what? Rudolf Rinsky was in a British film. What the fuck, the fuck out? What? <laughs> it just didn't make any sense to me. I guess had it been a more successful film, he might have ended up doing like international, more international. But then they might have taken him away and then we would have lost all the wonderful. So sorry, Rudolph. He didn't strike me as somebody who wanted to leave, though, did he? He was very much a national actor. Well, yeah, I never realized until I was listening to that commentary that he was one of four Rudolf Hershinskis, that his father was involved with acting his son and his grandson were all involved with acting and that he would go from stage to film so he was working constantly yeah his film credits are like how many film he's got like 200 odd film credits alone hasn't he he started in the i think in the 30s as well like late 30s or early 40s i mean he was definitely around like in the kind of pre-war era it's really weird when you see him younger in, in i think there's a movie called Barbara Hlavsova, which is a sort of film from the, I think the maybe early 40s by Martin Fritsch. And he, he he's really young and good looking in that. And uh, I remember posting... A picture I can't imagine him. I can't imagine him young. So I've only... What year was Good Soldiers Strike? Uh, I think mid-50s, I think, about 56. I think that's the earliest role of his I've seen. And he looks slightly younger, but not that young. He's already sort of like cherubic looking, isn't he? In that, and uh, but the son, uh, one of the sons is in the, your girl on a broomstick. He is the young guy. That's the and I, there is a kind of a likeness, I think. But uh, oh no, I didn't know that. We even did an episode on that. I don't think we picked up on that, did we? I can't remember which son it is because I think that yeah, he had. I, I get mixed up, yeah, because there was. I think there was there was at least one son, and then there's a grandson. I oh, know that. No, sorry, I think there's two. There's another son who is in the, do you know, the Snowdrop Festival. One of the sons is in that, the Menzel film, in My Pretty Little Village as well. I think maybe one or two of them are in that. I, I get mixed up, but I, I, just, I didn't know that. Oh, I learned something new every day. Got enough trying to find all the dad's films, though, let alone another gen, two generations of them. Basically, yeah, the young, good-looking, like the, the the teenager character in Girl on a Broomstick. I can't remember his name now. It's a while since I've seen it. But yeah, that that's Krasinski Jr. I can't remember. Oh, no, we didn't even... I don't think even think we noticed that when we did the podcast on it. Is that the guy who's in his uh, uh, his bedroom and with the, the cow and the birds and all that? Yeah. Is that the one? The young... The... Jan Krasinski, yeah. The... Oh, okay. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> this uh this this won't mean much on the podcast but uh yeah, this, this guy 
Yeah, no, I can tell. Wow. <laughs> now I want to know what he looks like now, whether he looks like his dad. <laughs> that seems to be a more recent one. Yeah, not really. There's, there's another No, he who... doesn't really look like him. There is a, a Rudolf Hershinsky directed a film called Pancha Se Zenit. Zenit? Uh, uh, looks like it's a mexican looking type film uh but i don't know if that's the father or the rudolph that we know because i they don't call rudolph hushinsky the second or junior but i think his father was also a rudolph hushinsky yeah that's right yeah the father and then and of course i'm not gonna i'm not gonna base my uh stuff off of imdb so because that's a big mistake and then there's the grandson as well, who is in the, uh, I've forgotten the name now of the horror. There's the, the, is it, I think it's called Vampire Wedding. I think maybe the name, basically it's this Czech vampire parody from the early nineties in which. The- I can't remember what it's called. I think it is something like the Vampire Wedding, oh, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I haven't even heard of that one. Oh, you need to get it on Czech Timber. Okay. Like, um, to get it on a Czech Timber. Interesting film. All right, let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. For the last 16 years, Doreen Douglas has worked at Constant Consumer Magazine without a promotion. She was quiet. Doris said. Conservative. It's Doreen. And inconspicuous. (gasps) Excuse me. Until the day. Today's the big day. They fired half the staff. It's a massacre. For this unassuming copy editor, keeping her job becomes an opportunity to do a little corporate downsizing of her own. Doreen, you're done, could you come hold the light? For everyone that's ever punched a clock comes a dark comedy about what happens when the clock starts punching back. Carol Kane. Look at this mess. I am going to have to clean it up. Molly Ringwald. I can hear someone breathing. Who is this? Gene Triplehorn. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> no! Office killer. Oh, you're a lifesaver. Not at all. That's right. We're starting off Shocktober 2023 with a look at Cindy Sherman's Office Killer. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Kat and Jonathan. So, Jonathan, what's keeping you busy, sir? Uh, well, I'm uh, teaching a course at the moment on East European cinema, uh, part time for a university in Halifax, actually. So I'm really kind of, uh, well, I'm, I'm really enjoying it, but yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a nice chance to revisit a lot of things, but yes, it's, uh, I'm kind of a little, little bit on a kind of like a break from my, uh, other things at the moment, although I, I, Still do intend someday to kind of write more about David Mercer, actually, the guy that I, I, I mentioned, because I'm just obsessed with David Warner and gorillas and uh, Czechoslovakia and Marxism. And he was obsessed with all of those things, too. So, yeah, hopefully at some point in the near future, I'm going to get back to that. There's also the, the second run release of um, Dragon's Return, which is coming out on Blu-ray next month. I wrote the uh, booklet for that a long time ago now, well, about six seven years ago now i think and uh that's basically the the same booklet again but you know it's a good essay though it is a really good essay (laughs) i've got the original release and i want to come on your course now you're welcome yeah very welcome (laughs) (laughs) you can teach it with me though (laughs) jonathan part-time teaching i mean you must just be sitting on a throne of gold right now it's the throne of something yeah (laughs) 
it's interesting because I have a lot of material from before when I, I taught like a long time ago and I'm just kind of like looking through my notes and I'm just shocked at like, you know, the, the, just the quality of what I wrote, you know, years ago. And, and uh, so, yeah, I'm having to go back through some of the, the stuff that's less familiar to me. I mean, the Czech and Slovak stuff is okay, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm revisiting some of the Polish and Yugoslav and, and uh, Soviet and... Uh, I mean, one interesting thing that kind of has struck me the more I've kind of like, you know, sort of like gone over some of this stuff is just how little known like some of the Yugoslav and the Soviet stuff is. I mean, I feel like almost like Czechoslovak cinema is the, the sort of like the dominant. I mean, that seems to be the one that's actually in a pretty good state in terms of like international recognition. And I mean, there's some really good like sort of Yugoslav new wave stuff that is really completely unknown now. And I feel that should be that could be like a next thing to really promote and push i think and and uh i'm guilty of that though i am totally guilty of just uh gravitating around the czech stuff <laughs> i would love to talk more about yugoslav film because i only know makaveev so if you could take me by the hand at some point and tell me other great things to to look at I mean, I think the problem is just the fact that there's so little that's like really kind of properly available, like in good condition, really. I think that's where there needs to be. And I don't know whether there's, I, I think, I mean, I, I kind of um, hear about, you know, like the different kind of like relationships people have with like film archives. And I mean, I don't really know how it works, like in the kind of former Yugoslav, you know, sort of republics. But I mean, the thing with the Czech, archive and Slovak archive is like they're really really good they're really helpful and I don't know I don't want to kind of like bad mouth any because I don't know how the situation is in in say the you know other other places but it may also just be more complicated because you've got the kind of whole breakup of you that that, that little thing that happened in the, <laughs> in the 90s with the Yugoslavia so I don't know how I mean how it works you know in regards to like rights to things made in yugoslavia and now maybe they're in archives in serbia or croatia and uh did they have their own version of berendov because berendov and uh, it seems like it was such a, a hub for everything and without that i don't think that we would be talking about czech film so much yeah i think i mean i guess they had regional studio i mean they had like you know belgrade zagreb uh you know they had like multiple sort of like regional centers i guess so yes it wasn't maybe quite as coherent as you know czechoslovakia and uh a lot of it is about that kind of access really and uh, probably the same is true in sort of like some of the former soviet republics i don't know there's a lot of soviet stuff on youtube subbed. that's true actually yeah that's and true. i the only reason i i get into a little bit here and there because obviously they do loads of the fancy fairy tale stuff that to me though the thing is that makes it intimidating is it's huge like it is it is massive and and it's if that is a rabbit hole that would take a decade to get through so i'm always like a teetering at the brink you know do i want to go down here and then i'll find something amazing and i'll be like oh my god i gotta see all of this and then i'll look at how much they produce and oh my god which heck it's kind of small so <laughs> you can get acquainted quite easily can't you because I must admit, like, you know, even say some of the Polish stuff, I think there's a lot of baggage, like culturally, historically, which 
you know, I don't always have, and, and Hungary too, and, and, and Soviet republics as well. And, and, uh, yeah, sometimes that can be, I can get intimidated by just that cultural, historical, social baggage. And, uh, but that's, that's good. That's a good, you know, I, I should have mentioned that about, yeah, that's right. Like the, the Moss film YouTube channel is amazing, isn't it? They have all this stuff there in really, you know, sort of recent restorations with subtitles. And because I found that I, I was looking, I saw a scene that somebody had posted on Twitter from War and Peace, you know, the Bondarchuk one. And I just was curious about whether it was there. And, and I think that the Moss Film channel has the whole thing there, all sort of six hours or whatever it is of that. This is what we do in our spare time. Yeah, going yeah. To the Moss <laughs> Film. <laughs> Everyone else is like, what? And Kat, how many adventures are you having these days, you cine slut? Oh my god, I'm having loads of adventures. So my first slate of uh, as a producer of uh, releases at Radiance Films have just been announced. So my very first project there is probably so me. Um, I'll never be able to top it. Pe- Elio Petri's Working Class Go to Heaven. So I've produced that. Uh, we've got Alex Cox on there talking about Jean Maria Volonti. I've got this professor. Uh, Matthew Kowalski talking about uh, Petri and politics and got interviews and stuff and I just fucking love that film so it's like it's been 10 releases not all of them are mine but that is one of mine you can go over to the Radiant site and check them all out they're on a special price till October the 5th if you pre-order I did um, what else the Sunday Woman was one of mine and also She Dies Tomorrow which is a modern horror film so it's all over the place in terms of what they're putting out like very high concept surreal horror film uh, some would say elevated but I can't stand that fucking word and I also got to do a commentary on one of the releases I didn't produce for a really interesting film called A Woman Kills which was uh, a French film 1968 French film couldn't be seen till the 2010s um Jean-Denis Bonan it's got a legit cameo from John Roland in it uh half of the cast and crew from Rape of the Vampire turn up and I did a commentary with uh the incredible Virginie Salavi I was mainly there as kind of moderator and hand holder because it was her first commentary and she wanted to do double. And so she was just completely blowing my mind with all this stuff about the French politics and what these dates meant. And it was really fun. But it is an incredible film. It is like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a a kind of cross-dressing killer would be what it looked like on paper with John Roland in it and you know but it's not that it's like this really avant-garde talking of free jazz uh, it's got this bizarre soundtrack one of the weirdest soundscapes I've ever heard in my life very unsettling political manifesto you know it makes Goddard look uh, like the establishment at that point this is like total f- I'm so excited that it's coming out and uh, I haven't I've been able to see them yet, but apparently the release they've managed to get a hold of Fran at Radiance has managed to get, I think, some of his uh, other shorts for the release to put on because, uh, yeah, he's a very underground, like, unknown filmmaker. Getting to do that was, I just think, I think that's going to be everybody's new favorite discovery when that comes out because it is, you know, talking of the Chetney Wave and that, it, it would have totally fit in that sort of era with those sort of films but it's france so it's uh yeah so what the hell is this film 
so I've been doing all of that and um, still doing my commentary, still doing my Patreon, uh, still doing a bit of everything. <laughs> I really must get that working class goes to heaven set. That sounds great. Cause I, oh, the I, restoration looks incredible. It's had new subtitles done. Oh, it's just so good. I've never seen that. And I think you put it on your top 10. So I, I really Oh my God, you'll love it. Because I love the, you I mean, the other pets I've seen. I, I love them. So uh, yeah, I, I'm really, and I love the title as well. It's just a great. It's totally me. I realised anyone who's seen it, you've got Jean-Marie Volante is this factory worker called Lulu Massa. And it starts off, he's in the factory and he's a really good worker and all his, all his workmates hate him because he puts them to shame with piecework. And he loses his finger and he becomes the poster boy for the union and the activists. It's a very cynical film. But all the way through, Jean-Marie Volante, again, never very physical performer. He's just screaming. He's screaming about exploitation. He's screaming about the workers. And I watched it so many times recently because we had new substerns, so I had to keep checking through them. And I was like, oh, my God, I am Jean-Marie <laughs> Volante. I'm Lulu, like screaming about the Tories, screaming about the monarchy. I thought, oh, my God, this is, this is me. This is what I look like to people. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on, like The Shabby Detective, Dreams for Sale, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, Ranking on Bass, Podcast of Power, Midnight Viewing. They are all available where finer podcasts can be found. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Jedna třicet ve stínu, dokází nám let. Jedna třicet ve stínu, já vezmu na to jed, že nese ženu zmrzlinu, zrovna když mám chuť. Jedna třicet ve stínu, jak nám praví rtuť. Tak máňo, prolučuj to trošku. A možná ještě víc, dva a třicet ve stínu, i lvům je dneska hic. Chtěl bych být květem lekmínu, jo to bych si kvet. Dva a třicet ve stínu, dokází nám let. Otevři tam dveře, prosím tě, nebo oni tady žádný nejsou. Praská teploměr, tři a třicet ve stínu, ze střechy kapetér. Teď přilepil mi na vestu, celé hejno much, já vydám si snad na cestu, za polární kruh. A to mám ještě zpívat To bude můj hrob, pět a třicet ve stínu, proč nejsem aspoň sob? Já snažím se už hodinu sklepat teploměr, pět a třicet ve stínu, kape na mě pera.
Morgana. He spoils everything. 